1911, when it opened, the Chicago Northwestern Passenger Terminal, referred to by some as Chicago's Pride, was one of the largest passenger terminals in the United States. It cost around $23 million in total to build and was widely considered one of the finest in the entire country. This incredible terminal ushered in a new era in passenger care and set a precedent throughout Chicago. It occupied 13 acres of land and was largely inspired by the early Italian Renaissance and Beaux-Arts architecture style. This terminal attracted thousands of passengers every single day thanks to its many different accommodations, including its own powerhouse building, private rooms, and even emergency rooms with free hospital service. Though it was demolished in 1984 and replaced by CityCore Center, which houses the modern-day Augieville Transportation Center, this incredible story of the Chicago Northwestern Passenger Terminal is not entirely lost. So join me in exploring the history of this former masterpiece. I'm your host, Ryan Sokash, and you're watching It's History. Today, we will discover the history of Chicago's lost train terminal, a place that was truly befitting to lords and ladies. And if I had a time machine, I probably had back to Chicago so that I could hang out at that lost terminal. Because as it just so happens, I am a 100% authentic Scottish Lord. Let me explain how this is possible. Established Titles is a project based on a historic Scottish custom where landowners are referred to as lords and ladies. We allow people to buy as little as one square foot of dedicated land to call themselves a lord or lady. We are committed to planting a tree with every order. It's a fun, novel way to help preserve Scotland's picturesque woodlands and biodiversity while supporting global efforts to reforest. What's more, many documents actually allow you to change your title to lady or lord, guaranteeing you the status you deserve. Established Titles makes an excellent last-minute gift, and you even get a unique plot number so you can look up the exact location of your land. The news gets better. Established Titles is running a big sale right now, and if you use the code It's History, you'll get an additional 10% off. So go to establishedtitles.com slash It's History to get your gifts now. And since we are all ladies and lords, let's head back to Chicago's lost train terminal. We'll start our journey with the origins of the railroad that Chicago and the Northwestern Passenger Terminal was constructed to service. As America's breadbasket boomed, there was an ever-increasing need for more railroad trackage to serve the states within. It was because of this need that the Chicago and Northwestern Railway was officially chartered on June the 7th, 1859. It was created through a merger joining several smaller railroads in Illinois and Wisconsin, purchasing assets such such as the now-bankrupt Chicago, St. Paul, and Fort DeLock Railroad, and eventually merged with its impressive predecessor, the Galena and Chicago Union. Interestingly, the Galena and Chicago Union was not only Chicago's first railroad, but the first railroad to operate a steam locomotive out of Chicago. The Galena and Chicago Union project stalled considerably at first. Its goal of connecting the cities from which it drew its name went on hold as construction didn't start for over a decade after its charter. It wasn't until it was taken over by a group with both the money and determination to see it through. And so work on the new railroad finally started in June of 1848. 
1850, 42 miles were open to Elgin, and in 1853, the first station at Wells Street opened along the west side of the Chicago River. This was just a few years before the Chicago and Northwestern Railway would acquire the Galena and Chicago Union along with two other lines, which now form the lines of the Metro's Union Pacific District. And even though it didn't reach Galena until the merger with the Chicago and Northwestern Railway, the Galena and Chicago Union earned a considerable profit right from the start, thanks to the agricultural boom. Prior to the merger, the Galena and Chicago Union network totaled around 545 miles, including its subsidiaries, and this was the earliest component of the Chicago and Northwestern Railways. The Chicago and Northwestern Company was led by the first mayor of Chicago, William B. Ogden, who later transferred leadership to Marvin Hewlett. Between 1872 and 1910, the length of the railroad track grew from 1,400 to 10,000 miles, serving areas in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, Illinois, Missouri, Michigan, and even as far out as North Dakota and Wyoming. This venture was so successful that it actually survived bankruptcy in the Great Depression. The Encyclopedia of Chicago writes that by the year of 1961, the Chicago and Northwestern Railway had over $200 million in annual revenue and roughly 16,000 employees nationwide. By 1968, it absorbed the Chicago Great Western, and not long after that, became a part of the Northwestern Industries conglomerate. In 1986, the railroad's annual revenue reached almost $1 billion when it became known as CNW Corp. Though it was bought in 1995 by the Union Pacific Corp and thus lost its independence as a railroad, in its heyday, the Chicago and North saw many different kinds of locomotives, including Alcos, time freights, and even locomotives carrying heavy ore out of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. So now that we understand the scale of these railroads, let's shift our focus back to the incredible minds who designed the Chicago and Northwestern Passenger Terminal. This beautiful terminal was designed by Alfred H. Granger and Charles Sumner Frost, two brother-in-laws who worked together to produce dozens of incredible structures all across Chicago, many boasting neoclassical ornamentation. From 1889, Frost worked on his architectural projects before starting a long-lasting partnership with Granger. After Granger completed his impressive education, starting at Kenyon College and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, followed by additional studies in Paris, he first worked with the architect Charles Coolidge to design the Art Institute of Chicago for the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, and later the architectural firm Jenny and Mundy before working in a private practice in Ohio. He worked in the private practice for four years starting in 1894 before returning to Chicago in 1898 to begin the partnership with Frost. One interesting fact about Frost and Granger is that they married into the same family. Both of their wives were the daughters of Marvin Hewitt, the then president of the Chicago Northwestern Railroad. It was this connection then that would bring them much of the work and credibility needed to design so many large-scale buildings for the railroad company, including the Chicago and Northwestern Passenger Terminal, of course. They designed the company's office building at 226 West Jackson, which 
was constructed in 1904 and still stands today. It currently houses the City College's headquarters. Throughout the years, Frost and Granger worked together to design many buildings throughout the North Shore, extending well beyond the city. These buildings include the Lake Buff and East Lake Forest Depots, along with over 200 buildings for the Chicago and Northwestern, the Milwaukee Road, the Rock Island, the Great Northern Railroads, and the 1907 George Forbes home. In fact, according to the History Center of Lake Forest and Lake Bluff, it's thanks to Forest and Granger that the Lake Forest College campus experienced a major architectural boom, designing buildings such as the 1898 Alice Home Hospital and the 1899 to 1900 Reed Hall. So now that we have the foundation in place. Let's examine why and how the Chicago Northwestern Passenger Terminal came to be. The Chicago Northwestern Passenger Terminal was built to replace the Chicago and Northwestern Railway's former passenger terminal, the Well Street Station. The Well Street Station opened in 1881 as a reconstruction of another previous station, which had been destroyed in the Great Fire of 1871. It served thousands of passenger trains over the course of 30 years before finally being replaced, seeing on average 32,000 passengers and 200 trains every single day. The station was five stories tall and also held office space for railroad executives and workers. It had a 12-track train shed and was one of the main stations that served a single railroad exclusively. Even after the Chicago and Northwestern Passenger Terminal was built in the hopes of relieving rail congestion on the bridge over the river with its elevated approaches, the Well Street Station remained in use for freight. The Merchandise Mart also used the air rights above the railroad in the 1930s. Situated on Madison Street on the west side of the Chicago River, the Chicago and Northwestern Passenger Terminal opened to great acclaim in June of 1911. The opening after five and a half years of work and many delays. The terminal was not only one of Chicago's largest and finest railroad depots, but the second largest in the entire country. It was located around five blocks northeast of the Chicago and Northwestern Railway Office Building on the west side of the Chicago River, extending from Madison Street north to the intersection of Clinton Street and Milwaukee Avenue. In its heyday, the passenger terminal was a sight to behold, boasting graceful, towering archways and sprawling 13 acres in space. It stood at 320 by 218 feet and was four stories high, an emblem of neoclassicism. An elegant Doric portico towered 120 feet over the street level at the main entrance, one of seven public entrances into the building. A massive sign on top of the building beckoned passengers from far and near. The Chicago Tribune wrote that well, utility services were the main focus during construction, its architecture was no less incredible, inspired by railway terminals such as those at London, Liverpool, Edinburgh, Vienna, and Paris. 37,000 tons of structural steel were used to build the station and its approaches, and it was lavishly outfitted with terracotta, tile, and ornamental brick. While outwardly, it appeared to be made of stone. The effect was actually created by burnt clay. One quote described the terminal as a lasting monument to the merit of brick, 
fireproofing, and terracotta construction. The build job was done by GOA Fuller Construction Company, which specialized in fire-resistant materials and burnt clay decorative features. The upper parts of the main exterior facing Madison Street were made of granite, and the side facing outwards towards Canal and Clinton Street were bricked with limestone trimmings furnished by the Hydraulic Brick Press Company of Chicago. The exterior was finished with Indiana limestone quarried in Bedford, Indiana, and the great room was furnished with terracotta from the American Terracotta Company. The Grillby Tile Company of Boston supplied rich green tiles that decorated the walls, and the ceiling was made up of interlocking cream-colored Guastavino tiles. At the street level, the concourse or great lobby extended through Canal Street and Clinton Street to provide utmost convenience to travelers who came and went through its halls. The terminal also had ticket, cab, and telegraph offices, as well as a lunchroom and approach with ornamental tiles frises throughout. The concourse also had access to men's and ladies' waiting rooms, public and private carriage entrances, and private elevators to various other rooms such as tea rooms, baths, children's rooms, retiring rooms, which were a type of dormitory, and emergency rooms, the latter of which providing free hospital service to those who might need it while traveling. Lighting, ventilation, and heating were all provided throughout the terminal thanks to its dedicated plant, which was in turn powered by its powerhouse. Believe it or not, the air was changed through the ventilation system every 12 minutes. Passengers in need of refreshments could turn to the public drinking fountains throughout the building. Building. The train shed cost around $6 million and had 16 tracks. But would you believe that there was also a fully operational post office beneath it? Automatic mail conveyors placed between the tracks delivered mail pouches to Station U, where it would be stored. In total, the new station had a capacity of over a quarter of a million passengers per day, five times that of the old Wells station. According to the figures compiled by the Chicago and Northwestern, the total number number of arrivals and departures at its new Chicago passenger terminal during the first year since its opening on June the 4th, 1911 was over 18 million and on average 51,500 passengers per day. In May of 1912, 47,215 people were served lunch in the dining room and the yearly total was 585,000. 200 meals. The volume of mail moving in and out of the terminal every day was on average 150 tons. But as we've learned from New York's lost Penn Station, nothing lasts forever. The story of the Chicago and Northwestern passenger terminal is a striking example of this. Despite the incredible success it enjoyed throughout its lifetime, as well as the considerable public outcry when plans to demolish the terminal first came up, plans were indeed set to raise the station. And the reasons were rather straightforward, because by the 1980s, this terminal was dated, and it needed to be replaced with something much newer. Many preservationists wanted to preserve the incredible Italian Renaissance structure, though ultimately it was denied historic landmark status in order to make way for the new tower that now stands in its place. While much of this long-lasting terminal has been forgotten, one particularly notable remnant remains. In the West Loop of Chicago, there is one particularly old building that stands out against the horizon. To some, it sticks out like a sore thumb, 
though to those who know its story, it is an incredible relic of the former terminal. Construction on this powerhouse started in 1909 and was completed alongside its station, though it's important to note that the powerhouse had already been out of business for around two decades at the time of the terminal's demolition. Generally speaking, it's quite noticeable as the towering 227-foot-tall smokestack really stands out. It was once attached to the exhaust of generators that powered the equivalent of what would be necessary for 15,000 people to live. It was originally a four-room complex equipped with a large engine and a boiler room, an engineer's office, and a reception room. The powerhouse provided steam heat to the train station, train yard, freight houses, along with the interlocking tower, and the Erie Street coach yard where passenger cars were heated up before use. The powerhouse also provided electricity to the station, offices, and buildings that were a part of the Chicago and Northwestern complex via generator. After its accompanying terminal was demolished in 1984, there were plans to raise the powerhouse along with it. However, it was thankfully saved from that ultimate fate. The building was purchased by a real estate developer who renovated it and repaired it, adding two interior floors and overhauling its design. It still stands today thanks to these renovations, now serving as an office and retail space. Though the Chicago and Northwestern passenger terminal was denied designation as a historical landmark, its former powerhouse is protected as a designated city of Chicago landmark and is listed under the National Register of Historic Places, which I must admit is some pretty interesting prioritizing. On one hand, you bulldoze the beautiful Grand Terminal, but of course you designate the smokestacks. That makes a lot of sense. Nowadays, the former opulence of the Chicago and Northwestern Passenger Terminal has long since been traded for a terminal that well, efficient is more reminiscent of a tacky airport. Times and trends have changed. And although we have given up on the glory of the past, at least we still have a nice smokestack to admire. Keep this story alive by sharing. Check out our memberships for exclusive episodes. Subscribe to its history. And don't forget to watch our episode on New York's Lost Penn Station. This is Ryan Sokash signing off.